morning, church. It's good to see you. Uh, happy Mother's Day to everyone here. It's good to, uh, that we can celebrate the moms. That's a very important thing. <laughs> hopefully you've done that already or you plan to. I don't want to put you on the spot, but hopefully you have plans to make your mom or your wife uh, feel very special today. Uh, that's a very important thing to do. Uh, I'll echo what Pastor Nathan said. It's good to have Greg here. I'm glad you're here with us. I'm glad that we can see you on this particular day. Um, I won't try and like beat around the bush. Uh, today's uh, Mother's Day sermon is kind of ironic uh, because we're going to, at least at the beginning, learn about probably one of the worst motherly examples we could ever imagine talking about. And that's okay because actually I think this passage that we have before us in first, or 2 Kings 11, uh, as I've been studying and, and really examining, is actually a really beautiful passage. Hopefully, uh, as we've gone through uh, all of these chapters, all of these different narratives of history, you're not bogged down too much by how much bloodshed we've had to navigate through. Uh, Last week, the body count was pretty high um, as we were navigating the scriptures. And I can't say that that's going to stop as we keep going through Kings. Uh, But I think that's one of the remarkable things, at least for me in my own sort of study as I've come away from this, is that every time there is tragedy Uh, We can be certain and sure that there is something else going on. And in fact, I think that that's what this passage here before us uh, shows us in a very, very evocative way. That even when all looks dark and dim and tragic, that actually there's something else afoot. Something else that God only can have a hand in. And I think that that is a wonderful, wonderful reminder, a wonderful truth, a wonderful sort of hook that we can hang our faith on. Is that truth precisely? So we look here this morning at the beginning of chapter 11. Our old pal, if you remember from chapters 9 and 10 that we looked at last week, that old guy Jehu who just went off killing everything that breathed. While he's doing off his thing, uh, the mom of one of his victims actually decides that she's going to try and raise the bar a little bit on who can be the most evil. And I would say that even though Jehu's body count is higher, I think Athaliah gets the crown, we might say. (laughs) This is... Ahaziah's mom. Ahaziah, of course, was one of the victims in chapter, 10, uh, chapter 9 who, uh, who uh, was found by Jehu and chased and, yes, fell victim to his minion's pursuit. You can read about that if you want to in chapter 9, verse 27. But his mom, Athaliah here, right at the beginning of this chapter, she seizes this opportunity to take the throne, take the crown, take all the power for herself, which naturally means that she has to kill anyone else who might have a claim to said throne. So we see here at the very beginning, chapter 11, verse 1. And when Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead, she arose and destroyed all the seed royal. (laughs) She's securing her throne. She's securing the idea that she is not only the queen mother, but now she is the queen ruler ruling over everything. She doesn't want anyone alive who could claim that throne again. She's making very sure that her rule is secure. Again, she's not winning any Mother's Day presents in this particular moment. (laughs) And in fact, though, this should not really be that shocking to us. This, it is shocking, this idea that this grandmother then kills all of her grandsons because she wants to secure power for herself. That is shocking. But it's not really that shocking when you consider who her family is. Again, 
Athaliah is the daughter of that infamous queen and king Ahab and Jezebel. She comes from a pretty uh, sort of, we could say, destructive breed. (laughs) Who, uh, when she married Jehoram a couple of chapters ago, uh, instituted and instigated him to go on his own killing spree himself. Which is just to say, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Especially with Athaliah here in this moment. And one thing that I've been thinking about as we've gone through king after king and example after example is that it seems to me that almost in every single instance that these supposed kings and queens of God's chosen people are adorned on their way to the throne by death and double crossing. It seems that every single moment that we turn the page, we see another way in which God's people uh, edge further, edge closer, edge deeper into death and depravity. Which I think, again, is indicative of just that. It suggests the waywardness of God's people. And it suggests just an incredible moment of how rebellious the chosen people of God are. And how far they'd fallen. Which again I think too is indicative of the human heart. One of the things that I've come away with as we've been reading. Is that we're seeing human depravity on display. Very ingloriously I might add. But very blatantly. You're seeing the lengths to which men and women will go. To secure their own fortunes. To yes act according to their own pride. As we looked at a couple weeks ago, uh, how dare we also say that will never be me. (laughs) No, hopefully you're not killing anyone on your way to the throne. But there is a lesson of pride. There's a lesson of hubris. There's a lesson of incredible humility that we ought to learn as we read of all of this treachery and tragedy. Back to the text, though. (laughs) Athaliah, she's destroying the seed royal. She's securing her scepter. So now she is the queen. And yet... This mother, this queen mother of Judah, she fails that Mother's Day test, we might say. And yet one amongst her, one amongst her own royal family, (coughs) excuse me, (coughs) amongst her own royal family, acts more motherly than she ever dreamed of. Notice verse 2. But Jehoshaphat, the daughter of King Jehoram, sister of Ahaziah, took Joash, the son of Ahaziah, and stole him from among the king's sons, which were slain. And they hid him, even and his nurse, in the bedchamber from Athaliah, so that he was not slain. Jehoshaphat, this wonderful woman, this, yes, fellow daughter of Jehoram, the sister of Ahaziah, yes, she notices the plight of all of these innocent royal heirs. She sees this injustice that's about to come on them, this, this, that's coming on them from this wicked queen. And I love this fact that she decides to do something about it. She sees how violent this uh, queen mother could be, Athaliah, and so she decides that that is not going to become of her kingdom. And she decides, yes, in a moment she steals and snatches. We might say she, uh, she performs an act of godly kidnapping where she takes the last remaining royal seed of Judah and safeguards him, hides him away in a closet before he too falls victim to that sword of Athaliah. She saves his life, that little Joash. 
Little baby Joash is hid away. And yes, he's hid away in the temple for six years. Notice verse 3. And he was with her, hid in the house of the Lord six years. And Athaliah did reign over the land. While this kingdom of Judah is echoing with the wails and the cries of dead sons, this Jehoshaphat decides to do something for the Lord. Do something in faith. And I think we ought to take a moment and take a step back and notice just perhaps the irony, perhaps the beauty of this particular scene. This Jehoshaphat, she's the sister of the late Ahaziah, who's just fallen. She's, yes, the aunt of the little Joash that she kidnaps. She is successful in rescuing her own nephew from the, from the death grip of his grandmother. Think of the family dynamics in that courtroom. His grandmother's trying to kill her grandson, and then the aunt steps in and saves the day. And she's successful in it. This covert operation, we might say, to preserve the royal seed from certain death. You can read about it in a parallel passage in 2 Chronicles chapter 22, in which a couple of other details are added. 2 Chronicles 22 and 23 are, are the same story with just a little bit extra details by the chronicler there. But we're told in that particular passage that Jehoshaphat, who's married to a man we're going to meet in a minute, Jehoiada, the high priest, this they do in conjunction with one another. They're both planning this operation, this sort of, uh, we could say, kidnapping sting to save this royal heir. And because of it, and because of, yes, a, a, a faithful remnant who were faithful and true to Yahweh, yes, even here this moment, they save the rightful heir to Judah's throne, safeguarding him, secluding him in the temple, right under Athaliah's nose. And that's where he lived for six years, little Joash did. Think about his life for a minute. Six years in seclusion. Six years living in constant caution and angst. With the number one rule being, don't raise your voice. Don't draw attention to yourself. Athaliah thinks she is free and clear. All the royal seed are dead. Except for one who has been hidden right under her nose. Joash's life is a life of secrecy, low voices, and closed doors. That's how this little boy grew up. And it's all because of the faith of Jehoshaphat and Jehoiada as they acted here in this moment in opposition to this evil queen Athaliah. Which is just to say, I think, one thing too that we can see here in Jehoshaphat and Jehoiada in their act of faith, it shows us, yes, I think quite distinctly that evil is always worth resisting. They stand up here in this moment. It would have been very easy to just go along with what the queen mother wanted. To go along with what this new person who's, yes, jockeying for this throne. Yes, by acts of violence. It would have been easy to fall in line like everyone else did. But they didn't. They resisted the evil that was on display, that was lurching forward and grabbing a hold of that kingdom. And I think there's definitely a lesson in that for us of clinging to the good and standing, we could say, even for the good, even in the face of just abject evil. 
they do that quite successfully and quite momentously. But I would say, as we're going to see in a moment, I think their efforts to be faithful to little Joash actually prove way more significant than they could ever imagine and perhaps they even ever realized. So Athaliah, back in verse 4, she's celebrating uh, seven years of tyranny over the people of of Judah. And yes, this is precisely when Jehoiada decides and begins to start making moves. And the seventh year, Jehoiada sent and fetched the rulers over the hundreds with captains of the guard and brought them to him into the house of the Lord and made a covenant with them and took an oath of them in the house of the Lord and showed them the king's son. The historian, like the chronicler in 2 Chronicles 23, tells us that Jehoiada begins strengthening himself. He's summoning the courage to now fortify his position, to fortify this little house where Joash was guarded in the te- near the temple, and to, yes, strengthen those who are loyal and faithful to this cause. And he covenants with these captains here, revealing this son who should have been dead. Imagine that moment, you're a captain of the guard, and this temple priest shows you, hey, guess what, that guy, that little kid that you thought was dead, uh, he's not, he's alive, he's right here. And that moment is more significant than you might imagine, because yes, too, it just means that act itself is an act of rebellion against the crown. You instantly know in a moment that there's more mutiny coming, there's more jockeying for the throne coming, now that this royal heir has been preserved. If you're a captain who's been through war, you might shrug your shoulders. Man, I thought we were past this. And here we are again. Another moment in which there's going to be more bloodshed, more violence, more vitriol, more clinging and crawling our way to the throne of Judah. This king's son was not dead. Which meant they knew what was coming. So as we will find out in a minute, Jehoiada, he then gets all these captains together, all these men, all these warriors, and he brings them together, covenants them by showing them the king's son who is very much alive, and then he positions them in rotating sentries around the house where Joash was being secluded and safeguarded. Look at verse number five. And Jehoiada commanded them saying, this is the thing that you shall do. A third part of you that enter in on the Sabbath shall even be keepers of the watch of the king's house. And a third part shall be at the gate of Sur. And a third part at the gate behind the guard. So that you shall keep watch of the house. That it be not broken. Be not broken down. Excuse me. And two parts of all you that go forth on the Sabbath. Even they shall keep the watch of the house of the Lord about the king. And you shall compass the king round about every man with his weapons in his hand. And he that cometh within the rangers let him be slain. And be ye with the king as he goeth out and as he cometh in. And the captains of the hundreds did according to all things that Jehoiada the priest commanded. And they took every man his men that were to come in on the Sabbath with them that should go out on the Sabbath and came to Jehoiada the priest. And to the captains of the hundreds did the priest give King David's spears and shields that were in the temple of the Lord. And the guards stood every man with his weapons in his hand round about the king from the right corner of the temple to the left corner of the temple along by the altar of the temple. He is secure. Jehoiada is making sure that no one and nothing is going to come in and claim this little boy and claim his life. 
And that's when Jehoiada calls for this ceremony in verse 12. For the official crowning and coronation, we might say, of Joash. Notice. And he brought forth the king's son and put the crown upon him and gave him the testimony. And they made him king and anointed him. And they clapped their hands and said, God, save the king. It's a momentous occasion, this little instance. All the people are rejoicing. They are happy and full, knowing that this occasion is happening according to, yes, we might say, the testimony. That's a little word there that means so much. It's ought to, it ought to draw our minds back to the testimony that we heard about in Deuteronomy. The fact that when kings are crowned, they are given the crown, yes, but they are also given the law. It's a Suggesting, yes, that they are to rule not with just policy, not with just political statements, but with religion and faith. And here again, you see the people, you see Jehoiada acting in faith, consecrating Joash to rule the people of God according to the testimony of God. They're putting him in this position, yes, to return to the ways of Yahweh. I think that's what we see here in this moment, and we'll see it even further. And in fact, the the great reform and revival that happens under Joash's rule is detailed for us in in the subsequent chapter. Chapter 12 is showing us that there was a clamor amongst the people, especially those that Jehoiada had gathered to himself. There was a clamor to return to the ways of Yahweh. And they're doing it here by crowning Joash. But this commotion draws and attention draws much attention to it. So much so that Athaliah, she has to go out and see what all this noise was about. And what does she find? Well, verse 13. And when Athaliah heard the noise of the guard and of the people, she came to the people into the temple of the Lord. And when she looked, behold, the king stood by a pillar as the manor was, and the princes and the trumpeters by the king. And all the people of the land rejoiced and blew with trumpets. And Athaliah rent her clothes and cried, treason, treason. Ironic. Ironic that this queen mother is calling for treason when she's the only one in this whole narrative who has ever acted treasonously against the crown. But she walks into that room. She sees what's going on. She sees this loud chorus of voices rejoicing. God save Joash, the little boy who is crowned king of God's people. And that's when Jehoiada's men, they seize that queen. And bring her outside to be executed, verse 15. But Jehoiada the priest commanded the captains of the hundreds, the officers of the host, and said unto them, Have her forth without the ranges, and him that followeth her kill with the sword. For the priest had said, Let her not be slain in the house of the Lord. And they laid hands on her, and she went by the way, by the way which the horses came into the king's house, and there she was slain. She is gone. That queen who stole the throne on the, on the backs and the bodies of all the royal heirs who had a rightful claim to it. And this brings about a great revival. Yes, instigated by Jehoiada. And it takes a hold of these people. Watch. And Jehoiada made a covenant between the Lord and the king and the people that they should be the Lord's people. 
between the king also and the people. And all the people of the land went to the house of Baal and break it down. His altars and his images break they in pieces thoroughly and slew Matin, the priest of Baal, before the altars. And the priest appointed officers over the house of the Lord. And he took the rulers of the hundreds and the captains of the guard and all the, the people of the land. And they brought down the king from the house of the Lord and came by the way of the gate of the guard to the king's house. And he sat on the throne of the kings. The covenant is renewed. It's a wonderful moment of returning to the words of the Lord. The covenant is renewed. The people receive it and they immediately act. Renewing right hearts with the Lord of all things, Yahweh himself, means exactly, yes, that all those old, fake, idolatrous images, they have to be destroyed. Repentance, obviously, and sometimes very often involves tearing something down along with it. The old ways have to be forsaken. The old things have to be forgotten. They have to be demolished. And such is what the people do here. They evidence this remorse. They evidence this renewal and repentance towards the things of the Lord. And yes, justice appears to have been done, returning to the throne. And that's what, it's, that's what I think the historian means in verse 20. Where it says, and all the people of the land rejoiced. And the city was in quiet. And they slew Athaliah with the sword behind the king's house. Seven years old was Joash when he began to reign. The city was quiet. There was peace in the land of Judah again. With the people clapping and rejoicing, I couldn't, this is not very biblical, but I couldn't help but get out of my mind all the people from Wizard of Oz singing, Ding dong, the witch is dead. (laughs) Sorry. That's what I had to, that's what I was thinking about. As they're walking through the streets crowning Joash, that's what they're singing on the way. (laughs) But there's peace again. Not just because that wicked Athaliah is gone, but yes, too, because Yahweh is returning to the center. Or at least that's what it seems like here in this instance. It's an incredible moment of history for these people of Judah. Evil is resisted. Truth is upheld. And there's this many reformation that happens amongst this kingdom. But there's something deeper and truer about these events that I want you to notice. I hasten through the text precisely because I want to spend a little bit of time on this. It would be one thing to read about that. And yes, there's rightful application to be gleaned from standing up to evil, to repenting and turning away from idols. And not just turning away from them, but tearing them down. But I think there's a truer comfort than just that. A deeper comfort that I think... At least it pierces my soul every single time I read and think about it. You know, I said at the beginning that Jehoshaphat and Jehoiada, they pull off this, quite successfully, this godly kidnapping of the last remaining heir to the throne, Joash. Little Joash, barely born. And more significant than I think they ever knew, these kidnappers, was the, the, the stakes of saving that little infant. If you remember, Judah at this time is much like their northern neighbors. They've, 
they are now a kingdom with iniquity and rebellion and infidelity, ransacking every corner of the streets, as we just heard about where there was Baal temples and Baal worship on all of the streets. It's infecting the land. Yahweh is of no consequence to these people. They don't think about the things of God. Worshiping that Lord and his word and living accordingly, that's a faint memory. They are many generations removed from when Israel was a united kingdom and united in faith too. But if you remember, remember back in 1 Kings chapter 12, that's when we had that moment when the kingdoms divided and there was two tribes that stayed. Or we could say two tribes that were faithful. At least at the beginning. And that was the tribes of Judah and Benjamin. The others, they went off. (laughs) They formed the northern kingdom of Israel. But the kingdom of Judah was made up of these two tribes. And that's very important for us to know. And I don't just mean to give you genealogy and history. But it comes into play very importantly here. Because Judah, yes, is the line through which, yes, the promise was made. The line of David is here at this point then, barely surviving. It's hanging on by a thread. If you remember, Athaliah goes on her killing spree at the beginning of this chapter. She's killing all, as it says there, a very important word, all the seed royal. This was on top of, if you read 2 Chronicles chapter 21, Jehoram, he massacres all of his brethren too. He's securing his throne by the same, the same manners and same ways, which is just by killing everyone who wanted it. <laughs> and this is on top of, again, 2 Chronicles chapter 22. Uh, Arabians, they had invaded Judah and they had slain all of the eldest, all of the eldest heirs that they could find in that particular moment. And this is on top of, yes, as we just learned about last week, Jehu slaughtering all the princes of Judah, the brethren of Ahaziah, 42 of them. A lot of death that has come along in this kingdom of Judah. A lot of blood that has been spilled. A lot of lives being lost. A lot of lives who are, yes, descendants, as we might say, of the house of David. You see, overlaid on top of this chapter is just that promise. Remember all the way back in 2 Samuel chapter 7? If you don't, 2 chapter, Samuel chapter 7 is one of the most significant chapters in the Old Testament. David is ruling. David is nearing the end of his life. And yes, at this particular juncture in his life, he is nearing this point where he wants to do something for God. And he has this desire to build God a temple. He wants to build God a permanent house. And what does God tell him? He tells him no. But he tells him that he has a better promise for him. Let me just read the verses. 2 Samuel 7, I'm going to begin in verse 12, if you want to write it down. That here, for David's desire to build a house, God tells him he has a better promise that he's going to give him. I'm actually going to start in verse 11. And as since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel and have caused thee to rest from all thine enemies, also the Lord telleth thee that he will make thee in house. And when thy days be fulfilled and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. And he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. 
And I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commit iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the children of men. But my mercy shall not be de- depart from him, as I took it from Saul, who I put away before thee. And thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee. Thy throne shall be established forever. That's the promise. An everlasting throne coming through David's line. The, the house of David, the seed of David shall never depart out of this place. It's this promise. It's that significant word that, again that you might have noticed there. That, that seed that he's going to set up. It hearkens us all the way back to the promise that first came to our first parents in Genesis 3.15. That the seed of the woman would one day come and crush the head of the serpent. Jesus Christ it will be coming through this line. That's essentially the truth of it. David has just been told that the long-awaited, the long-expected Messiah was going to come through him. And we know that as Jesus... And all the people after David here in this moment, they, they order their lives essentially around this promise. It makes up the bulk of the writings, this idea that they have fallen away from the ways of David. It's an instance after instance of falling away from the promise of Yahweh to preserve his people through his mercy. The deepest longing of Israel was for this Messiah, this seed, to arrive in their day. So as chapter 11 begins, think about all that context coming to here. That seed is all but snuffed out here in this moment. That royal seed is all but extinct. All because this Athaliah wants to claim the throne for herself. All because God's people, yes, decided to depart and go astray and go their own way. This sort of extermination of the seed royal by this queen here is not just a threat to the royal family and threat to human beings. It's a threat to the very promises of God. You see, Joash, he's the great, great... Great, 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 great grandson of King David. (laughs) Seven generations removed from David, you have this little infant Joash upon whom all these promises hang. He's the remaining seed. The one who, yes, here in this moment is the last remaining heir of the promise that God made to David that his throne would be established forever. Here, that promise looks quite doubtful. It looks quite in jeopardy. Not only do you have God's people running headlong into depravity and ruin and sin, now you have the house of David on the brink of being entirely wiped out. Therefore, when Jehoshaphat saves this little boy, saves Joash, she wasn't just saving his life. She was saving the Davidic covenant from almost certain disaster. She was keeping the promises of God alive by acting in faith. There's a moment here that we ought to stand and just stand in awe, at least I do, at how God works through ordinary human beings to keep his sovereign and yes, mighty and expansive promises alive. 
This promise to David, we might say, was one infant away from falling to the ground and falling to disaster. And yet when Jehoshaphat and Jehoiada, they saved this little infant, they were preserving all of that hope, all of that anxiety, all that expectation, all of that longing, all of that faith. Flip with me back to 2 Kings chapter 8. We covered this last week, but I skipped over this verse for a particular reason because it comes into play right here. It's talking about how, yes, the, the kings of Judah decided to follow the ways of Ahab and all of that that goes along with that. But notice what God says. 2 Kings 8.19, yet the Lord would not destroy Judah for David, his servant's sake, as he promised to him to give him all away a light and to his children. Yes, even as Judah was jettisoning the things of the Lord, forsaking him, going their own way, going, yes, stepping over bodies to uh, exalt their own pride and their own well-being. What does the Lord say? I will not depart. I will not forsake this, my people, because I've made a promise to always give them the light, to always preserve a seed, to always have hope for them in me. This verse is... At least for me, one of the most consequential in recent memory in this whole book of Kings. Even despite Judah's rebellion, the Lord is not departing from them. And in fact, as we go here in 2 Kings 11, he's actively working to preserve that promise according to his sovereignty. This is how God works. He works through people's faith, yes. Because that's what Jehoshaphat and Jehoiada were doing. They were acting in faith according to the faithful words of their Lord. And they exhibit this faith despite what the evidence seemed. (laughs) They're in a country that is, is progressing headlong into all manner of wickedness and waywardness and corruption and perversion. And yet here they are standing in faith against the fray. Despite the circumstances, despite the peril to their own lives, despite what it meant for them, that what it, how much it put them at risk, these two believed. And they acted in faith, and as a result, revival, renewal. The Spirit of God comes upon the people of God once again. Isn't how God works? I think that's how he always works. Maybe it looks like a worldwide pandemic. Or maybe it looks like an election that didn't quite go your way. Or maybe it looks like an economy that nears, uh, uh, that's nearing catastrophe. A housing market that's sure to bust at any moment. Maybe it looks like a society that's on the brink of implosion. Whatever it looks like, whatever it is, God sometimes has a way of putting what he says at risk. Because what it seems like, what we can see, doesn't always match up with what we believe. I think that's what God does, though. He sometimes puts his words, his promises in jeopardy. 
He permits these events, these circumstances to arise that can often cause what he is doing to come into question. God, what are you doing through this? Why are you allowing this to happen? I think very often that's what he does. He allows the things that he has promised us to be affected by us. All of the turbulence and the upheaval and the sin and strife of human history. And sometimes he can even threaten our faith. And he does this not because he likes to see us suffer. Not because he enjoys getting a kick of seeing us crying. He loves to do this because he wants to test the metal, the worth of our faith. So all of that leads me to this question. What is your faith in this morning? And that can be a a simple question that you might tritely run over. But think about it. Ponder it. Are you truly, as the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 7, are you walking by faith or by sight? Living and walking by sight, I think, will very quickly lead you to despair. Because everything you see, it's bad news. We've felt it for a couple of years now, or at least I have. All that you can see and read, that's walking by sight. Walking by sight, and walking by sight will lead you to a place that I would say is kind of dark and kind of dreary, without much hope, without much promise. Walking by faith, on the other hand, means trusting and believing in what you cannot see. That there's some other work that's going on behind the scenes that I don't have the ability to see or perceive, but I'm trusting in it anyways. The writer of the Hebrews talks about that in Hebrews 11. That faith is just that. It's the evidence of things not seen. We cannot always see what God is doing in and with our world. Much like Jehoshaphat and Jehoiada could not understand why all but one of those who are of the promised seed of David would all be destroyed. It very much seemed like that promise that they had believed was true so many generations ago was already coming for naught. What do we make of that, God? And yet, what do we find them doing? They're acting in faith according to what they don't see, but what they trust in. By what they believe in. My friends, this, I think, is very much where we are this morning. You and I can be confident that despite what it looks like, God is making a way, a way for his promises to be sure, to come to fruition. And yes, even in all of these dark hours of our present history, not one of his promises will ever or has ever failed. Not one of his words have fallen to the ground unfulfilled. And this is what he's called us to. To like Jehoiada and Jehoshaphat. To live and act according to his word. His, which inspires our faith. Despite what the circumstances look like. Despite what it looks like on the outside. Despite all evidences to the contrary. We, yes, the people of God, the church of God, are called yes, to gloriously and triumphantly. And yes, to broadcast this hope and this faith and this life that we have. Precisely because of the promises of God. Even when it looks dreary and dark. Even when it looks depressing and despairing. That's what defines us. A faith like these two in 2 Kings 11. A faith that acts. 
A faith that responds. A faith that trusts despite what it looks like. And I know that it is that's a difficult thing to put into practice. It's easy to say. It's harder to put into practice. How do we live by faith despite what it looks like? By clinging to these promises and these words of the Lord. Knowing, yes, as that great song says, he will hold us fast. That's the great thing as we walk by faith. We find out eventually we're not even the ones really walking. It's he that is holding us. He that is sustaining us. We are sustained every single day of our lives. Every single moment of our lives. By yes, this faith which upholds us. This great and everlasting faith and trust. Which he instills in us by his word. By his spirit. The acts of Jehoshaphat and Jehoiada. They're not so far off. They're not so foreign. The day I think is even here now. When I think God is calling the church to, yes, stand against evil. And to, yes, act according to the faith that has given them in the word. Despite what it looks like. Despite the circumstances. And that's what I think we find here in this wonderful passage. That God preserves his word by people who are in his word. What is your faith in this morning? Are you walking by faith Are you walking by sight? Let us pray.